VegCast. Happy holidays, everybody. I'm Vance. VegCast. And this is VegCast 36, last VegCast of 07. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes. I am Vance, and we are back with yet another full menu of podcasting vegetariana for you here on VegCast. And uh, this time, uh, we're going to be looking at some uh, press that a study out of Cornell University has been getting uh, for, as the journalists seem to cast it, uh, saying that a little meat is actually better for the environment than... uh, eating a vegetarian or vegan diet. We're going to speak uh, with somebody who is pretty uh, well-versed in this, Mike Hudak, uh, who's just got a new book out called Western Turf Wars and uh, has been studying the impact of cattle grazing on the environment for quite some time. He's now vice chair of the Sierra Club's National Grazing Committee. And uh, he will be taking a close look at that, and we'll see if those claims hold up to scrutiny. We will also have, of course, a musical selection for you from a band that does include a vegetarian, as is required by the rules here at the VegCast Music Department. A little holiday-themed music. And, uh, of course, we will also have, as always, a science fact. This one might sound like a rerun, but it's actually a whole new study that uh, echoes a previous study that we spotlighted here on VegCast. So go ahead and sit back, relax. That's all coming up for you right here on VegCast. Okay, let's get it going for this VegCast brought to you by Temptation Vegan Ice Cream. It's the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream made on dedicated vegan equipment by dedicated vegans. Now we're going to get right into the interview with Mike Hudak, but in case you want to know what is going on, you can check out the press release. It's in our show notes. That's the press release that uh, Mike Hudak talks about uh, that kind of summarizes this study. He has actually read the whole study, uh, which is from Cornell University and looks at land use and kind of comes out with a contrarian finding uh, since it's now common knowledge, although uh, people don't usually like to admit it, but it is now a given that uh, land is uh, that is used to grow crops for animals or otherwise uh, the raising of animals for food is uh, using much more land than that uh, used to grow crops for people. But this study seems to have found a sweet spot where that is not the case and actually uh, a little meat in the diet actually is okay and so everybody can relax and stop worrying about that. And that's certainly the way that this is being cast in the press. Uh, Just I looked at for a couple of headlines. The first headline that came up when I typed in uh, my search terms is from New Scientist, which is very widely read, and the headline is, A Little Meat is Good for the Environment. Uh, so we wanted to look at what the study actually says, where, whether it is being, whether the data in the study is being accurately summarized in uh, this press release that goes out to journalists, and then whether the journalistic community is actually reporting accurately from that. And you will be shocked to discover that the answer is not quite. But let's get right into that and find out how it all shakes out with this interview with Mike Hudak. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are joined by Mike 
Hudak, who's the director of an organization called Public Lands Without Livestock, and is also vice chair of uh, the Sierra Club's National Grazing Committee. Uh, Mike, welcome to VegCast. Thank you, man. I wanted to talk to you today because there has been some media buzz about uh, the whole agricultural uh, use of, of land and specifically uh, comparisons between uh, use of uh, land for growing food for people versus crops for animals versus uh, using the land to actually graze animals themselves. And uh, there seems to be a little confusion over whether it really is a, uh, a given that more land is used uh, when you're uh, creating food for people out of animals than if you're feeding the, the uh, plant food that you grow there directly to people. So I wanted to uh, check in with you, especially uh, you're involved uh, in a lot of this kind of area. You uh, took a lot of the photos in the book uh, Welfare Ranching. And uh, you are, I guess we could easily say, an expert on, at least in some areas of the country, the, uh, the grazing of cattle on public lands. Uh, so let me just ask you, first of all, uh, if you want to define the scope of uh, your area of study and, uh, and tell us where you're coming from on that. Okay. Well, uh, yes, you, as you said, I, my area of expertise is on western public lands. These are lands typically in 11 western states. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, the climate there is uh, considerably different than it is here in the east. We're talking about lands that receive uh, often uh, 12 inches of or less of annual precipitation. Uh, especially in the southwest, we see lands that have much higher average uh, temperatures. And so uh, much of this land is uh, much more susceptible to the impacts of livestock grazing than, than lands in the east. Also, uh, those lands, uh, being public lands, have not been domesticated in any way, mm-hmm. uh, as many of the lands have in the east, except for, of course, the uh, grazing of livestock. But what I, my point is, is those lands have not been worked over for other agricultural purposes, as have lands in the east. And so we have a lot of sections here in New York State, for instance, that are abandoned farms. Uh, I I know areas just around my hometown here, Binghamton, that uh, 150 years ago were farmed. Uh, The crops were grown on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, people got away with this for perhaps uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years and uh, and then abandoned uh, the operations, uh, presumably because uh, growing crops on slopes uh, resulted in, in soil being uh, washed away and uh, the productivity of the land uh, declined to the point that no one could actually survive off of it. And so now we have uh, second-growth forests uh, on this land now that are uh, 80 or 90 years old. So that's what I, what I mean by this. I mean, these are not virgin forests. Right. Because, it, you know, as I said, they had crops growing on at one time. And I think we have a lot of land like that here uh, in New York State. And uh, we're, we keep on returning to New York because it seems like a lot of the media reports about this are centering around uh, a report that really looked at this issue specifically in New York State. And so I guess I can cut to the chase and, and ask you, uh, in terms of that report, is it accurate then to say, number one, that, uh, you know, a little livestock grazing is actually going to help the environment and or is it 
uh, is it accurate to take whatever that, you know, what may be learned from that and extrapolate that to the rest of the country and say how we might feed the country in general? Well, I've read the report, and I've also read the, uh, the major press release. Maybe there's another press release, too, but I've, the, the one that I've looked at is from the Cornell website, Mm-hmm. And it, it's dated October 4th, 2007, and it was written by Susan Lang. And so I've, I've looked at that press release, and I've also read the report. And and I can say that the, the, the report does not uh, argue for livestock benefiting the land. It doesn't talk about environmental benefits or, or, or deficits in any way. It only talks about the carrying capacity of various diets that contain mm-hmm. varying amounts of meat and varying amounts of fat. And, and we can talk about that in some more detail. There's some interesting things in there. What I did find, having read the report, is that there are uh, statements in the press release that are misleading. I oh. won't say that they're outright lies, but, um, but uh, certainly they are uh, not supported without qualification uh, by uh, data and results from the report that the press release is about. There's a, uh, a graphic uh, right on the uh, right near the top of the press release showing uh, various sized footprints of these different diets, and there's a caption under this uh, uh, this uh, graphic, and it says, um, uh, and I'm quoting here, uh, even though a moderate fat plant based diet with a little meat and dairy uses more land than the all vegetarian diet. It feeds more people because it uses more pasture land, which is widely available. Right, now, and that seems to be the key to some of these media reports. They take that and then say, okay, so people, they should eat meat after all. Yeah, well, one of the caveats here is that uh, these researchers never examined a vegan diet at all. Their okay. vegetarian diet contains some dairy, but they don't say how much, although they do say that the, the uh dairy diet does meet the uh, minimum uh, uh, recommended daily allowance. And I don't know offhand what that is. I've looked on the Internet. It says something like two to three servings of dairy per day, and I'm not sure what that is. But right. I'm sure other people could look that up. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, the, the problem with uh, this uh, caption is that... Um, it doesn't. Uh, it gives the impression that uh, this diet with some meat in it, and of course they don't say how much meat. They say uh, some meat. Uh, that this would uh, that, that this would feed more people than any vegetarian diet that they examined, and that's mm-hmm. not true. That's not true. They should have qualified it and basically said, well, a low-fat diet that contains a little meat will feed more people than a lacto-vegetarian diet that contains a lot of fat. Okay. That's, that's the accurate statement from the research that was done uh, by uh, Christian Peters and his associates. And, uh, of course, I don't even know that that's true. I'm, I'm just saying that I, I read the paper and the numbers that they present uh, indicate that conclusion. I mean, if they've actually written wrong the incorrect numbers down, there's no way that I could know that. Well, but that's, the, that's the correct uh, implication of what they've said. But that's not really what the caption in this press release says. 
And even from that, uh, you know, uh, reporters kind of pick that up and try to uh, find a way to make it accessible and shave another couple corners off of it to uh, to report that, you know, a, a putting some meat in the diet actually helps the environment, which is exactly the, the media reports that, that I've seen. Um, so there's no basis for that at all. Right. In, in the research. In the research. Now, maybe... Maybe one can read that uh, into the press release, but um, but no. The the I think the the takeaway message uh, from the research itself, uh, looking at the uh, the vegetarian diet compared to any of those containing meat, is that the um, the vegetarian diet can prov- uh, can actually uh, support about sixteen um, percent more people than even the most uh, efficient uh, meat-based diet. Just to say one more thing is that um, the, they, they, varied, they looked at 42 different diets, just so everybody knows what, what, what the deal is here. They looked at they looked, 42 diets and they couldn't put one vegan diet in there? Yeah, that's, 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 uh, I, I, yeah I'd like to say something about that, too. There's only two sentences in the entire uh, report uh, dealing with the vegan diet, and... Um, and uh, it might be worth uh, just looking at those too. Uh, th- these statements may be may be accurate, but uh, I'm a little suspicious that they didn't investigate it. They say um, they say here uh, the results uh, also indicate that ruminant meat and milk requires less land devoted to annual crop production relative to other meats and beans. Thus, we conclude that the inclusion of beef and milk in the diet can increase the number of people fed from the land-based relative to a vegan diet up to the point that land limited to pasture and perennial forages has been fully utilized. Now, that actually may be true if there's a fair amount of land that you couldn't grow vegetables and fruits on, Mm -hmm. and it really is only suitable for being grazed. They don't, uh, but they don't... They never say how much, not having analyzed the vegan diet, we can't say how many more people would be fed by, by uh, allowing these cattle, or dairy cattle, uh, to, to graze on these lands, or that we could produce a sufficient amount of uh, beef. Uh, I suspect, I mean, here's my suspicion, mm-hmm. is that these guys uh, maybe did kind of a back-of-the-envelope calculation or, or, or maybe they really did do the. Maybe they really did crank the numbers, and and then found that the the uh, advantage, uh, although real, was was pretty small, and uh, that if they actually put it in there, that they would leave themselves open to more criticism from people like me, for instance, <laughs> uh, than saying, well, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give them that. Maybe you can feed two uh, percent more people with putting a little bit of beef or dairy in there. But um, that the environmental consequences, let's say maybe in terms of uh, additional methane production, for instance, uh, would outweigh that. But right. see, by leaving that out, uh, they, they kind of deflect that kind of criticism. Well, that's one of the things I wasn't clear on, that, uh, you know, again, the, the media reports uh, that I've seen just boil this down to better for the environment, and they, they tie this like, oh, not so fast on uh, saying that raising livestock is bad for global warming because this thing says that this will help the earth. So uh, what they're looking at in this report is, is a very 
kind of a narrow scope of of environmental effects. They're not including all the possible. In the report itself, they're not they're not looking at environmental effects at all. They're only really looking at which diet will feed the most number of people. Okay. Or the particular uh, types of land that exist in New York State, and they break it down into three types of land in New York State. I mean, there's land that basically is only suitable to be grazed, and then there's land that you can you can uh, grow different kinds of things on. And so, uh, considering that there's a fair amount of land here, so they say. And again, I don't, I, I can't uh, uh, support or challenge these numbers either. But they claim they got them. I'm sure there's uh, this kind of land statistics that have been uh, uh, derived from from somewhere. That mm-hmm. these uh, show that um, that there is this fair amount of land that is only suitable for some kind of grazing. And uh, but they're they're not talking about what the environmental impacts of grazing that land are. They're assuming that that they're benign, I suppose. And uh, but but for perhaps for the number of cattle that they would put on them, they may be. And, and another takeaway message that I see from this report is that um, uh, even with uh, their their uh, beef production, the uh, the amount of of production would be very low. I mean, for one thing, they found that um, even with the, the vegetarian diet, that uh, it would only support about 6 million people in New York State. Mm-hmm. Now, how many people are in New York State now? About 19.3 million. Right. So if we were to receive just the people in New York State from just the food that could be, uh, could be produced here, we'd have a population that would be less than a third what it currently is, number one. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, even with their... Uh, their meat diet, which they claim can beat some vegetarian diets that are higher in fat, the amount of meat that each person would be allowed to eat would be about a third of what it is today. Right. And, and so, you know, you do the arithmetic, and you're looking at a, a level of meat production, which is probably less than 10% of what we have today. You know, I can't even imagine a world like that. Well, no, and that's, I mean... That's the thing is that they they do seem to like try to find a uh, you know perfect balancing point where they can say all right right if you if everything happened to be right here then this you know this phenomenon might be the case but I want to be clear that this report does not actually uh, look at environmental impacts at all because the the stories that I was reading and again uh, I haven't read through the report yet but the stories that I was reading implied that there was some assessment of environmental uh, impact in there and if that's not there that means that that, that the whole thing is much more wildly uh, being exaggerated than even I had thought. Well the only way that I could see that there might be indirectly something about environmental impact is that, of course, all of the food that they analyzed here could be produced in New York State. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that uh, one would have to import less food uh, from other more distant locations, presumably using fossil fuels, uh, then one would use uh, less of, of that kind of energy and cause less of the pollution from that by right. using foods that could be produced right in the state. Okay. But those, you know, those calculations are not really carried out in the report. And, that in, and again, even if you accept that as being the way that they're talking about impact to the environment, that's just one of many different uh, possible environmental impacts that's even being acknowledged. 
Right. Okay. Well, and uh, I, I want to be sure to include that uh, the fact that you do have a new book out uh, called Western Turf Wars. Now, your area of specialty is not, as we've said, is not in the uh, ecosystem in New York State, but more on the, the Western Plains, and uh, you've certainly done a lot of work uh, out there. Can you give us a, a kind of an overview of what what this book looks at? Right. It looks at, at the uh, corruption within the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, which are the two major agencies that manage the, the public lands in the West uh, that are grazed by livestock. And uh, I, I looked at this issue by going to the people who have worked in those agencies and also to uh, grassroots activists who have had long experience dealing with those agencies. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of got like an inside, outside view of the, how the agencies operate. And uh, we focused, as I said, on, on the influence of uh, the ranching industry on management decisions uh, of those agencies. If we did include all of the public lands available uh, and said, yeah, it's fine for cattle to graze on public land, and got all of that going, would would that somehow, in terms of the number, the amount of acreage available for for cattle grazing, would that then negate the disproportion uh, in terms of how much you would need to feed so uh, x amount of people? Yeah, there's very little justification for raising livestock on on the western public lands at all. I mean, a lot of the justification uh, is uh, is in terms of supporting rural economies, but uh, there's even a lot of dispute over that. I've seen uh, reports by economists showing that actually the contribution to even uh, rural economies at the county level in many cases is very low. There's very little product in terms of the beef produced on a nationwide basis, something like only 3% of the nation's beef comes off of all of the 260 uh, million acres of, of western public land. So it's very low productivity lands to begin with. Uh -huh. and, uh, and and then you weigh that against the environmental damage that the, that the ranching does. Uh, I see no justification for it at all, considering that there are other values that we should, uh, that we should uh, consider, such as uh, watershed and uh, wildlife and recreation and so on. So so I don't see any real, uh, from a nationwide perspective, of there being any uh, justification for ranching on public land. And um, I guess uh, the other question, if I can rephrase that, would be uh, just could you run down, uh, for people who may be unfamiliar with the phenomenon, what the uh, environmental impacts actually are from, uh, I mean, just a quick overview of uh, cattle grazing on uh, on what we would otherwise have as pristine wilderness, or what we would call pristine wilderness. Sure. Well, the, uh, as I said, these western public lands uh, are generally fairly arid. Uh, much of them are, uh, are deserts of one type or another, and, uh, and some of them are hot deserts. And so uh, the, the uh, vegetation there is very poorly adapted to intense grazing. It was never... Uh, grazed in recent times, in the last several thousand years at least, it hasn't been grazed intensely by anything. And so uh, what we found there over the last uh, couple of hundred years that cattle have grazed on it is that uh, uh, there's been uh, severe erosion uh, because the plants were 
overgrazed. Uh, we, we lost soil stability. A lot of that soil was washed away. Uh, we see destruction of stream banks. Uh, this has had a, a devastating effect on uh, habitat for fish. Uh, we've even seen a lot of grazing in uh, forests, which are now national forests, that have had uh, major changes in the in the structure of these forests and in the uh, frequency of catastrophic fires. And we see a lot more catastrophic fires in national forests today than than 50 or 60 years ago. Some of that's due to bad logging practices, but uh, some of it's also due to the uh, long-term effects of livestock grazing in these forests. And that's actually much less admitted than, uh, than that they had some uh, bad logging practices and um, excessive um, uh, fire uh, prevention that went on there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I assume uh, people can get more info on that uh, type of thing in Western Turf Wars. If they wanted to uh, get the book, uh, right. would we direct them to MikeHudak.com, or where, where would you uh, advise people to go for that? Well, I have two websites. I have a personal website that uh, deals with uh, various aspects of ranching and, and some other things. And there they will find some videos that I've made about the book and some articles that I've written over the years about ranching and some photo essays also about ranching. But uh, I also have a separate website just for the book, and that's called westernturfwars.com. Okay, great. They can get the book at westernturfwars.com, or they can get just uh, more information, more multimedia at mikehudak.com. That's correct. Okay, great. Uh, Well, we're out of time now, but Mike, I want to thank you for taking time out uh, from your day. I know you have a busy day uh, today, especially uh, to speak with us on VegCast and help uh, sort through uh, this report and the way that it's kind of being promulgated by the media. So thanks for being with us. Okay, thank you, Vance. Nice, uh, Nice to talk with you. Okay, great.
Psychic Reindeer, a fine new song by Paul Nordquist of the group Ba and the Humbugs, whom you may recall from a previous VegCast. We played Free the Reindeer before, and of course that group does contain uh, one vegetarian member. That's me! So, I just, I love that song, I wanted to play it. It does have a kind of an animal connection, if not, uh, you know, vegetarian advocacy. But that's enough of that, because now it's time for... Science Fact. Our science fact for this VegCast is, meat raises lung cancer risk to study finds. This is from Reuters. Uh, people who eat a lot of red meat and processed meats have a higher risk of several types of cancer. Sound familiar? Well, it should because uh, we reported on a completely different study uh, done about a month ago that found that same thing. But the lead here, the, the hook, is the way this sentence continues, including lung cancer and colorectal cancer. U.S. researchers reported on Monday. The work is the first big study to show a link between meat and lung cancer. It also shows that people who eat a lot of meat have a higher risk of liver and esophageal cancer and that men raise their risk of pancreatic cancer by eating red meat. Uh, The people just uh, skipping through here give us the breakdown of how many people. uh, 500,000 people were studied for this, uh, 53,396 cases of cancer uh, were diagnosed in these people uh, over a long period of time. And the people in the top 20% of eating processed meat, of the eating processed meat group, had a 20% higher risk of colorectal cancer mostly rectal cancer, and 16% higher risk for lung cancer. Those are pretty large uh, percentages uh, in the scientific uh, kind of community. Furthermore, red meat intake was associated with an elevated risk for cancers of the esophagus and liver, the researchers wrote. These differences held even when smoking was accounted for. And uh, the article goes into more of the, the details, what they're talking about when they say red meat that's beef pork and lamb all types processed meat includes bacon red meat sausage poultry sausage luncheon meats cold cuts ham and most types of hot dogs including turkey dogs Uh, and it finishes with a comment from janine genkinger of georgetown university in Washington, D.C., and Anita Kushik of the University of Montreal, uh, who said the findings fit in with other research. Meat consumption in relation to cancer risk has been reported in over a 100 epidemiological studies from many countries with diverse diets, they wrote. Uh, so it seems like this is pretty well established now, red meat cancer. 
Uh, it's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. It's pretty well documented, and yet it's one of those things that our mainstream media doesn't like to talk about very much, and certainly uh, our mainstream individuals don't like to talk about or think about because every time uh, you choose to have meat, you're basically choosing not just to uh, cause suffering, distress for animals and for the, the people who have to work in slaughterhouses, but you're choosing to raise your cancer risk. Uh, but the, the key here is uh, the lung cancer connection, which will shock some people, but certainly not those of us who read the China study where T. Colin Campbell talked specifically about lung cancer and how it, uh, its risk was indeed related to animal protein and how it explained uh, the number of lung cancers that afflict those who have never smoked in their life. Uh, and I'm hoping that after this, now perhaps uh, people will start paying more attention to some of the other things in the China study. Uh, but then again, one can always hope, but that uh, would require people to turn away from their bravado in saying, I'm going to go ahead and eat whatever I like and I don't care how much cancer I get, to uh, turn away from that whole emotionally-based attitude toward meat and instead embrace something that might logically be termed the science fact. Alrighty, that's going to about wrap up this full menu of VegCast, VegCast 36, the last VegCast of 2007, but not the last VegCast to be sponsored by Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream made on dedicated vegan equipment by dedicated vegans. Okay, I want to thank Mike Hudak for coming on and bringing his expert eye to the issue of animal agriculture and land use. And I want to thank Paul Nordquist for writing that fantastic song, My Psychic Reindeer, with Bon the Humbugs. And I want to thank you for downloading VegCast and subscribing. Remember, you can subscribe at iTunes, and I hope you will, because 2008, we're going to have a lot of fine VegCasts for you. And I hope that in the course of the year, 2008, you will make a point of getting out there and living like you mean it. Veg.